Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. This is an interesting one, folks. I stumbled upon uh, our guest when I read an article. I, I have a Google, I've mentioned this before, but I have a Google alert on the words meditation and mindfulness, so I get... All sorts of interesting articles about the meditation and mindfulness space in my inbox every day. And I saw an article in the Deseret News, which is the big newspaper in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the headline was, What a Mormon Doing Buddhist Meditation Has to Do with the Future of Faith. And it was about this guy, Thomas McConkie, who had spent many, who grew up in the Mormon community and then went off and spent many, many years doing uh, Buddhist meditation, seriously engaged with the practice, and then came back to Salt Lake City uh, to this very Mormon community and has started a, a quite a successful a little Buddhist meditation group called Lower Lights. And so I, I can only imagine, uh, I, I could only imagine as I read this article, what an interesting amalgamation of cultures and beliefs and practices this would be, because I've spent some time as a reporter at ABC News covering uh, the Mormon community. And so I was really surprised that this was happening and intrigued. And I finally got Thomas uh, into the studio, and you're going to hear a a really interesting conversation uh, coming up. First, though, one item of business and uh, then your calls. The item of business, I mentioned this uh, on a previous podcast, but I want to mention it again, just in case you weren't listening. And if you weren't listening, shame on you. We're doing a survey where we want to uh, take the podcast to the next level and we want your help. So we're running a survey on 10percenthappiercom slash survey. If you've got a few minutes and you want to do us a solid, go there and answer a few questions about, you know, what we can do better, what more you'd like to learn from the show, other people you'd want to hear from, other formats that we might move into, 10percenthappiercom slash survey. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, let's do your calls. Here's call number one. Oh, wait, wait, before I take the call, I got to do my caveat. Not a mental health professional, not a meditation teacher. Uh, I haven't heard these calls in advance. I'm just a reporter and a meditator doing my best to stay warm in a cold world. Uh, all right, here's number one. Hi, this is Francis. I have been meditating regularly now with the 10% Happier app, thanks to you, and I really appreciate it as it has changed my life a lot. I have read your first book and I'm now reading the second book. I've got two questions. One, just a little housekeeping type question. When somebody tweets to you, does it, does it go to somebody who, who reads them? Just curious because I know I don't usually get a response, but I thought maybe your somebody in the ten percent happier is looking at them or reading them. And then the next one is I noticed there aren't any meditations having to do with grief, and I experienced um, a profound grief this year uh, with a death, sudden death of a young person, and wondered if there are any meditations that directly address this and how to meditate on and think about that and cope with it. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Two great questions. Let me start with the second one first. First of all, I'm very sorry for your loss. Grief is 
for pretty much everybody an unavoidable fact of life, but it doesn't make it easy. So again, I'm sorry. But I want to thank you for pointing out a deficiency, or let's just say an oversight on the 10% Happier app. We should be we should have meditations on grief, and we will. So thank you for that suggestion. We will act on it. I do want to tell you, though, that we did a podcast dedicated to the issue of meditation and grief. The guest's name was Joe DiNardo. Joe DiNardo, he wrote Letter to My Wife. And it was one of the podcasts where we got an enormous amount of feedback. He he lost his wife. We got an enormous amount of feedback after posting that podcast about how moving it was. So go ch- check that out. It might it might be useful for you if you're interested. As to this first question, uh, Twitter. So I am reasonably good. I wouldn't say a hundred percent good, but like reasonably good at checking Twitter. Uh, I am awful at replying. Once in a while, if I'm in the mood, I will reply or if I have the bandwidth to do it. Often I'll just like like press the like button on ones that I like um, unless there are people saying really mean things to me. Sometimes I like those too and it actually turns out to be a great way to annoy people who've uh, been trolling you. I think – I think, and I say this with you know ninety percent confidence, there is somebody from the company who actually looks through, and if there is a specific question related to the podcast or the company or the app, uh, we'll answer them and follow up. W- the way you can up the chances of that to a hundred percent is to add to or tag in. I don't know if that's the right word in a Twitter sense. Add at ten percent. So if you tweet me and it's and it's to me at Dan B. Harris, and then you add at 10% somewhere in there, then I'm almost positive. I'm I'm actually positive somebody from the company will see that. So, yeah, I wish I was better at, you know, I, I don't even look at my Facebook messages. So I'm, I, I'm, Twitter is where I'm at, at my best in terms of responsiveness. But, you know, I also have a huge stack of unopened mail in my office. I, I am not the best at, at uh Responding. That's largely because I'm overloaded and that's something I'm working on. Anyway, that's I'm oversharing. Let's go to a second call. Here we go. Hello, my name is Lawrence. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. As a former evangelical Christian and trained as a minister and eventually became an atheist and now I'm into this, I guess we call it a secular Buddhism. I'm kind of curious about the community kind of stuff like weddings and funerals and other rites of passages and, and whether this is just kind of an individual thing or more of a community thing. Thanks for answering. Thanks for your podcast and your app. Wow, you got a great story. That's a cool call. Well, a lot to say. So I, too, I would call myself a secular Buddhist, but I take the Buddhist part very seriously. I also take the secular part pretty damn seriously, too. The Buddha said there were three big parts of his teaching. Uh, there was the Buddha, there was the Dharma, which is, you know, uh, the the words, he, you know, he actually, the, 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 the practices and the ideas that he promulgated. And then there's the Sangha, that word is spelled S-A-N-G-H-A, I believe, and that means the community. They're all, you know, on, there wasn't, one wasn't bigger than the other. I mean, they're all important. And so the Sangha among us modern-day meditators is often, and I include myself in this, overlooked and underemphasized. 
but it is, you know, if you if you put a lot of weight in the words the Buddha said, and I'm not arguing you, the listener, need to, you know, treat everything you said as gospel, but if you, you know, if you think that it might have some importance, that's a pretty powerful argument he was making. The Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, they called it the three jewels. Uh, so... Uh, there's a lot to be said for having a community of people with whom you practice and with whom you do this life. And in those, depending on the sangha, there are, you know, sanghas where, you know, you can do the rituals of life together, you know, around death, around marriage, around birth. And that can be very powerful. As I said, I am not great at this. I mean, I have a, because of the kind of life I lead in that, you know, I have a meditation podcast and I have a lot of friends who are meditators and teachers and I'm a co-founder of a meditation app company. I, I am in, I have a kind of ad hoc sangha, but I don't have a formal one where I'm, you know, really regularly seeing the same people and deeply involved in their lives and, and you know, marking the, you know, the the big personal landmarks, the deaths, the births, the marriages, et cetera, et cetera, the, the dissolution of marriages with them. And I think that's a, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And um, so my advice to you would be to look around and perhaps see if there is a sangha locally with which you'd like to engage. It is the truth that in some parts of the country and the world, there are no options but uh, my understanding is there are some online options, and um, I don't know much about that. I say that without knowing much about it. Our goal at 10% is ultimately to start building that out. You know, we have the beginnings of that now where on the app you, you can talk to a coach directly and really our coaches are experienced meditators, and they will engage with you as much as you want. They really will. But it's not quite the same as an, you know a true online community of people, but – you know, over time, our goal is to really build something toward that because the community part of this thing, having other people around you who normalize the practice, who hold you accountable, um, that, that that is a it's it's hard to overstate what a in in my experience what a powerful thing that is. So great question, and uh, look, uh, hopefully that's something for you to explore. All right, speaking of sanghas, and I suppose that call was placed where it was because my brilliant producers knew it would lead to this segue. We're going to talk about a interesting meditation community or sangha in, of all places, Salt Lake City, Utah, capital of the American Mormon community. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've spent quite a bit of time reporting on uh, the Mormon church and even some of the very controversial breakaway splinter Mormon so-called fundamentalists who still uh, do polygamy, uh, which, which, by the way, was outlawed by the mainline uh, mainstream Mormon church, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. Um, but I've interviewed uh, apostles of the main mainline uh, Mormon church, and I, I once visited a Mormon temple, which is off limits to non-Mormons, but it was before they opened for business. So that was a really interesting thing to be able to walk through a Mormon temple. And so I've had a little bit of exposure to this made-in-America religion, uh, a lot of that reporting was done around the time when Mitt Romney was running for president, and we got really interested in what Mormon Mormonism is, and and so I got a real education in that. And so, you know, this is this is a faith that really there's a high high level of orthodoxy. If you're in the Mormon Church, you know, it, 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 you don't find a lot of casual Mormons, from what I can tell. 
And so I was so interested when I heard that there was a th- kind of a thriving Buddhist meditation group in Salt Lake City f- founded by a, a, a guy who calls himself a Mormon and, and populated by many people who are active, practicing, believing Mormons. So I, I wanted to know how does this work and what what was the founder's story? And so finally, Thomas McConkie who, uh, as we said, lives in Salt Lake City and found himself in New York City, and I got him into the studio, and here's what he had to say. First of all, thank you for coming on. We've been trying to set this up for a while. (laughs) Totally. Um, How did you get interested in meditation? I was 18 years old. I'd had a pretty big falling out in the Mormon church. I was raised Mormon in Salt Lake City, Utah, Mecca, where there's still to this day a huge concentration of Latter-day Saints, of Mormons. And I had a falling out with my family, with my church, my community. I mean, when you fall out of the church in that concentrated an environment, it's not just, you know, you don't see people while they're at church at Sundays. It affects 24 hours of your day, seven days a week. And I went through a kind of rowdy adolescence just, you know, trying to sort it out. But by age 18, I realized there was a really intense hunger and I needed something to you know, channel my devotion towards. That was the environment I was in. Mormonism wasn't going to work for me. And I happened to stumble across a Zen center in downtown Salt Lake. So There is such a thing? Uh, there, absolutely. There was uh, Kanzion Zen Center was the name of that particular Zen center. And it was the biggest order of Zen Buddhism outside of Osaka, Japan, in the whole world at the time. So it was in its heyday. And there were Buddhist masters hanging out, you know, just a few blocks up from the Mormon temple in downtown Salt Lake. And I was really fortunate to, you know, find some support from them and, you know, plant my feet on the path, so as did, they say. Did you did you start practicing with them there? Did you go overseas or what? what or what? How uh, to go? I, I did both. Eventually, I started practicing in downtown Salt Lake, just at the Zen Center there. And I really took to the practice. I, I needed it. I needed something to really, you know settle me down. And I was, I felt so committed to Buddhism after a short time that I just decided to move to China. Like, you know, let's, <laughs> let's return to the, the fountainhead of the wisdom stream. So I, I spent a few years in mainland China as well. Skipping college? Uh, I ended up studying Mandarin there and transferring credits. So it didn't totally derail my life. Most Mormons, if not all practicing Mormons do a missionary year abroad? Many, two years. It's a two-year two mission. And I, like I said, I, I had been out of the tradition for quite some time. So you didn't do that? I didn't do a mission, but it, it made sense for me to get really far away from Utah, because even though I was studying Buddhism and was really finding myself in it, it was still a really painful place to be. What was the reaction of your folks, your family, to to <laughs> you studying at the Zen Center and then going to China to study more? Oh, it was all sorts of edgy. I mean, and this is back, I mean, this was before the year 2000. I mean, meditation was not mainstream at the time, let alone in a conservative bastion like Salt Lake City. So it it was edgy. And, you know, I don't think people were thrilled about it. I think it was even threatening on some levels because it was so alien to our way of life there. But I I knew there was something in it. The the people I was meeting, just, you know, the qualities they emanated as human beings i could tell whatever practice they were doing it had done something to them and i was curious and you know after a short time of getting into my own practice as a teenager i you know subtle things like i was you know approaching 10 percent happier right (laughs) like little adjustments and i wasn't so anxious all the time and i was sleeping a little bit better and 
so on and so forth. So I, you know, I really took to the path early on and felt committed to it. How would you describe for people who are completely unfamiliar with it, Zen practice? What what were you doing in your mind during this practice and what impact did it have on you? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, and just to give a little background, Zen wasn't the only lineage of Buddhism I practiced in or have practiced in. But in that particular school, that's that is a... It's an unusual school in that the founder of Kanzion, Genpo Roshi, he innovated an approach to meditation that he calls Big Mind, and it involves voice dialogue, which is a Jungian psychotherapeutic technique that you know came from a couple named Helen Sidra Stone in Los Angeles back in the seventies. So we were we were you know it was a kind of uh, interdisciplinary zen center so there was a lot of voice dialogue which would be a whole other conversation but then you have your standard zen diet of koan practice where the teacher hurls a riddle at you that the the rational mind can't answer and it jams all your circuits and you spend a lot of time just sitting still on your cushion and watching your breath and you know watching thoughts and sensations come up and pass so it's a lot of just that a lot of the classical you know, meditation techniques, you know, come to bear on how, Zen as well. How does the koan interact with, because you, you described two things there. You described the koan, which yeah. is a riddle yep. that Zen masters will give you. It, as you say, jams your circuits and yeah. it really gets you, it knocks you out of normal sort mm -hmm. of discursive, habitual ways of thinking. Right. But then you also described sitting, watching your breath and then watching whatever feelings and, and thoughts come up. I think most listeners to this show that's the kind of meditation they do. They just kind of yeah. feel their breath coming in, and when they get lost, they start again. How does the koan interact with that, or are they two separate practices? Uh, it's a good question. I think on one hand they're separate, and on one hand, on the other hand, they're this one and the same practice. For I can speak from my, you know, relatively little experience compared to some, but the the koan it has a way of bringing your thinking mind to its knees, so to speak. You you realize after struggling with the koan long enough that the answers you're looking for aren't up here. And so you start to train yourself, like when you're sitting still and facing challenges in your practice, facing challenges in life, that you're not going to, th I like to say, you're not going to think your way out of a think hole. And the koan's good at showing you that. It, it, it frustrates our, our normal uh, path to trying to solve something. And a different kind of action tends to arise out of that. I love the expression, think hole, because... <laughs> It's awesome. It sounds like you're saying sinkhole with a list. <laughs> yeah. But I see that so much in my own practice. Just right. and I, I usually note it, you know, I make you make a little mental note of whatever's happening, at least the, the way I've been taught meditation is mm -hmm. so you feel your breath coming in and going out and then you're gonna get distracted a million times and it helps for, for me at least to make a little quiet mental note of whatever's just carried you away. Yeah. But often it's just random thinking but right. think whole actually adds another <laughs> layer because it's so seductive it's right. got a quicksand uh aspect to it right exactly and you know more thinking leads to more thinking leads to more thinking yes. Yes. and you're in a hole and when you're in that hole it doesn't even occur to you how you got there which is by thinking <laughs> right so. so the little note of think hole actually i think can knock you out of it yeah it's a little rope you can you know toss out and hopefully climb back out of exactly yeah so but i guess uh, technically and the koan versus the sort of straight up sort of basic breath practice mm -hmm. you do them at different times you you may sit down and say oh, i'm doing koan work now but 
in the next hour I'm going to do straight up meditation or is it or do they intermingle even on the cushion my experience is they start to really coalesce over time and, and you're still sitting when you're just sitting still the, the koan bubbles up at different times you know so and um so th- this spoke to you obviously on a deep level sent you overseas although you might have been trying to escape also but I think escaping was more important than enlightenment <laughs> to me at that point but it worked you know so two what, birds what happened then like did you keep did you like get a traditional career and start working in that or did you stay in the in the practice I did both. I did both uh you know I in China I was a student and learning mandarin but also really dedicating myself to a buddhist practice and a lot of people were doing Tai Chi, which I hadn't anticipated. So I started learning Tai Chi and um, I ended up uh, doing two years of uh, coursework as an undergrad in China and then going on to be a consultant in China and, you know, living in other parts of the world as well. But the, the daily meditation practice was really a lifeline for many, many years. And did you stay in the Zen school? Uh, you know, it was, I would say, after the first few years of Zen practice, I started to drift towards a more kind of what a lot of the people listening to the show would identify as just like a a standard meat and potatoes meditation practice. I was watching my breath. I was letting things come and go. I wasn't, you know, working with a koan so much. I wasn't interfacing with a Zen teacher at that time. And then a big turning point, uh, another guest you've had on the show who I revere and who I've had a really meaningful relationship with is Shinzen Yang. Oh, yeah. So I met him back in 2005. And he did a lot to shape my practice and help me pick the Zen back up. He's, he holds Zen very deeply. He's not transmitted in that lineage. He doesn't hold an official post, but he, he holds the tradition deeply and has blended it really beautifully with other traditions. So, so the twist in your story, though, is <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> so it is, it is so surprising because you, you hear lots of stories about people who grow up in a tradition, uh, they believed in the tradition, and then they stop believing in it and maybe take up meditation as like some sort of alternative alternate spirituality or source of meaning or right. spiritual practice but for you right. you did all this meditation for a couple of decades and then you came back to mormonism yeah talk me through that process ill advisedly no i mean <laughs> i was surprised i um it, and it was it, there was kind of a specific turning point in my life and my practice where if i look back on i didn't know it at the time but if i look back in hindsight, there was a moment where where things turned a little bit. Um, I was studying, with, you know, at Shinzen's advice um, with Shinzen's Zen teacher Joshu Sasaki Roshi, who who passed away a few years ago. But I was really fortunate to get to study with him for the few years before he died. I, I had an experience with Sasaki Roshi um, at a, an intensive Zen retreat, where my life, all of a sudden, in a single moment kind of came to the head of a pin it became very simple very simple and a lot of the scripts that had been running in the background in my consciousness that were so embedded i didn't even really know that they were there so much of the pain that i'd carried around the cellular memory of you know growing up in a really traditional society and feeling cast out by it it's like it kind of evaporated in a moment. And not that it didn't leave residue. I was still, you know, a flawed human being with, you know, scars and all that stuff. But everything got really simple. And I literally just drifted back into a Mormon chapel a few days after that experience. 
And I connect them because I remember sitting in this Mormon chapel and kind of looking around me like, how on earth did I get here? Like, I would have never expected myself to be in this place on a Sunday morning somewhere. It's something I'd left behind so thoroughly so long ago. And at a deep intuitive level, it was, I just knew that's where my new practice was. I knew if I was really going to heal, I knew if I was really going to get my life back, that I had to be able to sit in the belly of the beast, which for me was Mormon church. No, but does that mean you? the practice for you was to sit and to coexist peaceably with your, I guess, ostensibly co-religionists and maybe even your family members? Or yeah. did you buy the orthodoxy? Because Mormonism, and I'm not an expert, but I've done some reporting on, on Mormonism, is yeah. they, there are some elaborate claims. Yes, indeed. I mean, my friends who know me best back home joke that I'm a Budeo Mormon and I'm some like manifestation of a hybrid practice that's not well recognized yet. Um, so uh, I'm not necessarily the voice of Orthodox Mormonism. There are far more qualified people to talk to about that topic. But I, yes, to the first question, for sure. I, I was there and I knew enough about meditation practice that it's not just when I'm sitting still. Meditation practice is moment to moment how I'm meeting life. And this was a particular kind of practice for me. You could call it trigger practice where I was, I was intentionally going to a highly triggering and activating environment where, I mean, it felt like annihilatory threat to my wow. being to be back there. But I had enough momentum in my practice like, okay. Let, let me see how this sense of annihilation comes up in my body, the, the challenging emotions, the negative thinking. And I just, on this impulse, I, I, as they say in Buddhism, I sat with it. It really changed me. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So all of that I get, mm -hmm. but I just want to get to the orthodoxy yeah. for a second. So because Joseph Smith, yes, uh, the founder of Mormonism, uh -huh. uh, talked about the golden um, plates plates yeah. that he dug up, mm -hmm. guided by an now I'm 
working from recall here, but he was guided by an angel who appeared to him in his bedroom in upstate New York, took him to a a hill, Mm -hmm. and he dug up these golden plates, Mm -hmm. translated them, Mm -hmm. and then we got the Book of Mormon and a few other books later on that I don't know if they came from the plates or from Revelation of another variety. But do you believe that story is true? What I believe, having, you know, been in that environment my whole life, in and out, is that there's a real power in the Mormon tradition. What you see now in modern Mormonism is a whole spectrum of people who relate to the church and its teachings literally, other people who relate to it on different levels and feel a certain metaphorical resonance, and so on and so forth. I I wouldn't say that I would reduce all of the Mormon church's truth claims to metaphor. I think that's a mistake. But I also think there's something more subtle than just a strictly literal, this is what happened historically. I think there's something subtle in there that we don't exactly understand just yet. I think Joseph Smith had spiritual experience, and through that consciousness that was filtered through that particular mind and that part of the world and so forth— he wanted to share a message of how people can live joyful lives. And I've tasted of that joy in Mormonism and have a real profound respect for it. The, the, my understanding, again, based on sort of some reporting, but not a ton of reporting mm-hmm. uh, in the Mormon community, was that actually that the level of orthodoxy was very high. That your basic, that if you, I was always under the impression that there wasn't a huge gradation where you had people like in the Catholic Church who right. started to, you know, whole wings of the Catholic Church were that whole huge swaths of the population that view it all sort of metaphorically. But I right, thought in, right. the, in the Mormon Church, it was really about like if you're in it, you're in it. You you believe, uh, you believe it. You know, chapter and verse. I think that's true. And Mormonism is a young religion, relatively speaking, a hundred and eighty some odd years old, almost one hundred and ninety years old. If I'm not going to do the math right here on the spot, but <laughs> it's young compared to let's say you know Judaism. Um, there's a real, uh, there's a real stew boiling back home, not just in Salt Lake city throughout the world and the church, but it's concentrated in Salt Lake. And I think people are starting to reckon with what you're pointing to that traditionally it has been monolithic. Uh, and now in a postmodern world, people have very different experiences of Mormonism. There are different ways to Mormon, as we say back home. And I think our tradition is starting to grow into a fuller maturity that can see that and respect it and celebrate it. And the church is okay with that? The church hierarchy is okay with this? I think the church hierarchy, my experience of the hierarchy is that they're a lay clergy, right? The people who serve in the Mormon church, they're, they're kind of called out of their communities and neighborhoods to serve the church. And there are people like you and I who want people to live spiritually satisfied lives. I think they're eager to, to adopt anything that would work for people's happiness. Um, I have been remiss in not asking about your relationship with your family. So how bad did it get at the time when you were, you know, having this revolt? And what is it now that you've sort of Got, found your way back inside the church. Yeah, that's that's a juicy question. Um, at the moment, you know, I'm grateful for the friendships and the relationships we have. There was a long time in my life where I didn't expect to be in touch with my family. I went many, many years without really being on speaking terms uh, with some people in my family. Including your parents? Absolutely, yeah. More, more my father than my mother, but, you know, even when my 
mom was available to talk to me. I had felt so much pain and alienation that I wasn't available to talk to her. And, it, you know, there's just a lot of pain all around. It, it's a serious thing in Mormon culture when your kid leaves the fold. There are there are repercussions. Celestial repercussions. Yeah. No, thanks for pointing that out. It's socially, yes, but like doctrinally, you know, there are teachings that uh, the the sins of the children fall on the heads of the parents. Well, and, and the family goes, if I recall correctly, and forgive me if I'm saying this incorrectly, that the family goes to heaven as a unit. Salvation in Mormonism is social. You don't get saved alone. We get saved, you know, the, the community gets saved or we don't get saved. There's a strong element of that. So the stakes are really high and blood boils and it, it's difficult to sort through those things. So how are things now? I, you know, from my point of view, they're quite amazing. We've really mended to a great degree. Not that we don't have a lot more healing to do, but... You know, I think they've, I, I had an epiphany, I'll start here, that in my late 20s when I felt all sorts of sorrow and heavy-heartedness around just home life, you know, and family life, and I, I think if I were to, like, point to what was really uh, bothering me about it, it's that I felt like I wasn't accepted for just honestly walking the path I felt called to. And I had this epiphany that I was guilty of exactly that same thing towards my parents, that there was a part of me that really begrudged their Mormon faith and begrudged that they couldn't let me have my faith. And so there was something in me that softened and realized if we're going to get the ball rolling, I need to really learn to accept that this is the way of life here and that people care as much as they do. And it's, it's genuine. It's authentic. And even though I find it painful in my particular circumstances— it, it it's an authentic belief. It really matters. And 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 with your dad, uh, I consider him a good friend. That's amazing. Yeah, it it's is a big transformation. It, it really is. Yeah, and I you know I have a lot uh, to thank. Uh, the practice is really what helped me kind of let go of a lot of hardened beliefs. And you know I carried a belief that we're never going to get better. We're never going to heal. I'm never going to talk to these people again. And as you know, as a meditator, you start to see those scripts, you start mm -hmm. to see those thought forms that congeal and possess us. And they just, they softened over time. And I realized that, you know, it was kind of a form of insanity to latch on to this thought, like we can't just come back to the next moment and meet each other again. That's great. Um, yeah. So you've gone so far now, this is how you came to my attention, which is that you've started uh, meditation group in Salt Lake City, <laughs> yeah. which got you a little bit of attention um, and somehow popped you up, up into uh, my radar. Um, mm -hmm. So what is this group? So the name of our group is, the the name of our organization is Lower Lights School of Wisdom. And we, we go by the short name, Lower Lights. And Lower Lights, just for listeners, it's a, it's a phrase that comes out of an old Christian hymn. Uh, let the lower lights be burning. And it's this kind of metaphor, like we can, we can, through practice, through cultivation of the spirit, we can learn to be better people and serve one another. It's a, I won't get into it, it's a gorgeous little hymn, and it felt like a nice intersection to me of the, the paths that I hold really deeply, Christianity and Buddhism. And just to be clear, um, a lot of people won't know this, but yeah. Mormons consider themselves Christians. 
N- right. n- not a lot of there are that's a controversial in say evangelical circles. Sure, they'll often argue that Mormonism is actually a cult. It's not Christian, et cetera, right. et cetera. But so I just want to make that clear in no, the minds you. of the yeah. listeners when you talk about Christianity, yeah. you're talking about your own faith. Absolutely, so, I've got the bully pulpit here, so I'm saying Christian Mormonism is Christian. You, you <laughs> go for it. So, uh, but I wonder, like, was this a controversial move to make? Um, I know you say before that the church has a reasonably open mind right now when it comes to people having differing views on the mm-hmm. on the on uh the you know taking a legal uh, uh fundamental view of scripture but to add in this buddhist meditation practice mm-hmm. uh, how did the community feel about this and and was it difficult to re- attract people to come do this with you it's a great question and i i think i want to look at the kind of macroscopic level for a minute here because i think what we're doing in mormonism is actually happening all over the planet the way I would sum it up is that we're looking at how we can share this kind of life-changing practice with different demographics, people of different persuasions. I happen to be brought up in the Mormon church, and I got to a place in my practice where I, I felt a pain that people back home weren't going to experience these beautiful teachings that are part of our human heritage. And so I got really serious about sharing it. And like I said about the church leaders, I you know, I think you need to be careful when you introduce a completely new species or religion into another religious context, but that's really not what we do at Lower Lights. I I think when we're at our best at Lower Lights, we're taking universal human principles, practices that transform us, and we're translating them, hopefully responsibly, into a Mormon language that people can understand and they can run with in their own spiritual lives. And I, you know, I see you doing that in a different context. You're translating meditation into a language that Anybody in the, let's say, the modern working world could pick up and say, yeah, that's me. I could do that practice. So there's a there's a big movement and effort right now to make these teachings more available, I think. And so to take me inside what, what a meeting, what, what are the. What's a meeting like? What are the practices you're referring to? Yeah, that, that's a big question. I want to say also that uh, it's not just Mormons that come to our events. That's actually a big part of our social function. That if you know, Salt Lake City to this day is still quite divided between Mormons and non-Mormons. So a big part of our mission is can we create a meditative holding environment where people with very different belief systems can come together and actually you know recognize one another's humanity. So that's a big part of what we do. Uh, We need to do translation work for uh, the Mormon community as much as we need to do translation work for other kinds of people who come to our events. I language the teachings differently to teenagers who come through the door than I do, you know, to, you know, people in their 50s and 60s and 70s. So there's something generational about people absorb the practice. But that must be tricky for you in terms of languaging it for an audience that's both Mormon and non-Mormon. It is. It's, a, It's. you know, we're really holding a space that it's, there's a lot of tension in holding that space, but I think there's also huge potential to bring the community together as and you, well. And you are attracting active, believing Mormons? Yes, absolutely. That's that's a big part of our mission to engage the whole spectrum of humanity. It's it's easy enough to get into, let's say, a secular mindfulness practice and share it with the people who are going to flock to it anyway. But to really hold out for every kind of 
human being who could potentially walk through the door and offer them ex- an experience where they feel honored and met and seen. That's that's an art that we're we're students of. We haven't mastered it by any means, but our intention is to really hold a communal space, which hasn't been done traditionally where I'm from. It, it's not infrequent for me to hear from believing Christians mm-hmm. that. And I'm now I'm talking about what, what yeah. would traditionally be understood yeah. in, in the broader cultures, Christians, that that meditation might be some way a threat to their, you know, it, it is derived from Eastern spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, it might, you know, and there, there actually are evangelical pastors who will tell folks that, that this is you shouldn't be doing this right. or yoga. Right. Um, what do you say to a Mormon who might be who, you know, might, you know, want be attractive on some level to this practice, but have concerns yeah it's that's one of the essential questions we're working with um we start with where the tradition is um there are teachings practices that already exist in mormonism that lend themselves deeply to meditation i don't i don't think about meditation as a graft onto the tradition i don't think you're implying that either i happen to be trained up in the buddhist tradition primarily But when you survey the world's wisdom and contemplative traditions, you start to see patterns. You know, cultivating concentration is universal. You see that across all the traditions. So to talk to Mormons about concentration and point to scripture that says we're asked in our holy scripture to uh, keep a single eye on the glory of God. It's, It's a poetic rendition in scripture of focus. Focus your mind, focus your heart, focus your attention on what is higher, what is ennobling. And there are ways, there are really natural entry points into the practice because it's a human practice. There have been different expressions of meditation across different traditions and geographies for thousands of years, but they're all human practices. And so, you know, what we do at Lower Lights... If we're doing it well, again, it shouldn't be foreign to anybody. We hope to really communicate directly to people's humanity. And I think meditation is a really beautiful way of being human together. And how's it going? It's crazy good. You know, like we, it's really picked up fast um, in terms of people who come to the events, people who want to support our organization, and people who want to share our story, people like you who we're really grateful to because more people hear about it. But it's, you know, it's the organization's been growing faster than we can keep up with it. And we hope to just get to keep doing what we're doing. It was like important work. I'm curious about your personal practice. Before we started rolling, you said that you had just come back from a retreat, but it was in the yeah. uh, contemplative prayer tradition. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, what, what does that mean, actually? What can you? What What is the practice? It's interesting. So, I was at a retreat with Cynthia Bergeau in North Carolina, uh, a beautiful teacher, a real master of the tradition, and the the practice in. Christian centering prayer, it's it's very simple, not an easy one, but, but the basic practice involves noticing when something is occupying your awareness. So it's often called an object of awareness, whether it's a thought, whether it's a feeling, etc. And you'll, you'll come back to your prayer word, or if you don't use a word, you'll just practice letting go of whatever the particular contraction in awareness is, whatever the particular fixation is in awareness at a given moment. You just let it go. And so it's this basic practice of noticing when awareness grips on something and practice letting go. And 
you know, having done a lot of practice in different traditions over the years, I, I see the unique languaging and the spirit and the different emphases that come up in Christian centering prayer. But I, I recognize it in Buddhist practice and Hindu practice. And I, my sense, I don't know if we have the science to back this up today, but I, I sense that there are probably universal mechanisms that the world's traditions are intuitively training and we still tend to think about them in terms of compartments. You know, there's Buddhist meditation, Christian meditation. I think over time we may discover underlying mechanisms that train a suite of meditative skills. Anyway, that's somewhere down the road. But to answer your question, you know, to me, and part of this is just my interference as a, a Buddhist meditator, I tend to see, you know, Christian meditation as, oh, well, that's Buddhist too. Um, you know, there's a certain... Um, uh, bias in the way I perceive things, but uh, that that's what it amounts to. Uh, and when, if you're using a prayer word mm-hmm. in this centering prayer practice, mm-hmm. so is that kind of like having a mantra? Uh, it's different than a mantra in that a, a mantra is something you will rehearse, you will repeat it over and over, so it will bring the mind back into concentration. The mind wanders and you bring the mind back. This is like almost like a reverse engineered yeah. mantra in that you're not, you're not using this sacred word until you notice that the mind is pulled away. So in theory, if you're not, if you're not occupied by any objects, you know, for a period of time, you're not reciting the mantra, you're not using the word at all. So it's a lot of people confuse the two, but they're, they're actually training different aspects of awareness where if you say on one side of the spectrum, there's concentrative awareness. And on the other side of the, the spectrum, there's a kind of an expansive quality of awareness the, the Christian centering prayer method helps us return to expanse, return to expanse again and again. So when you, if you're not aware of any objects, if you're not aware of anything specifically, mm-hmm. what, what's, what's happening? Well, that's, uh, that's another conversation. That, that touches on uh, you know, what they refer to in Buddhism as cessation or shunyata, zero. It's, you know, if you're not aware of any objects, then... You know, at the deepest level of that, you're not aware of anything. You're not aware of awareness itself. It's a kind of luminous emptiness. I don't know how to language it better. That's kind of my Buddhist background coming in. But it's, uh, you know, it's uh, an incredibly rewarding non-experience experience. experience. <laughs> <laughs> but is that happening to people in, in, in centering prayer? Or is it more just like you're just continuously letting go of things that come through. I think it is. I think in Buddhist terms and classical enlightenment terms, people who are doing centering prayer wake up. You know, they they have that moment where they recognize that it's not a subject looking at an object, but they they touch into the nothing, the the zero of experience. And then all of a sudden what arises in the next moment is, you know, they, they have the experience of being everything. They're merged with everything for, for a split second, for a minute, for a day, for a lifetime. You know, I, I, I know people in that tradition who really have deep practices and awareness, and it seems to be taking them in a similar direction that, you know, the meditation I've done for years has taken me. So, so it's amazing that you have these practices that all emerged in cultures that are disconnected in mm-hmm. time and in in geography mm-hmm. so I, I, what is that right i mean it 
on one level, it's kind of a mystery. I don't know what it is. Uh, the, the perennial philosophy that Aldous Huxley referred to, that these, it's coming up, these teachings, these practices, they're everywhere. What is that? And I think human beings just have a certain genius for, you know, if, if there's something, if there's an edible shrub in their physical environment, they'll find it and they'll find a hundred ways to cook it and make it taste delicious. And if our internal environment is like more or less the same, then we'll find a hundred ways to cultivate a life where we're not suffering so much. I mean, I think there's something just uh, intuitive and innate about these traditions that crop up. And I'm, I'm quite fascinated by this great human tradition where we're learning how to not just master the external environment, but, you know, how to make more of a home to come home to in our internal environment. If you're if you've been able to introduce meditation into what one would imagine to be a deeply inhospitable environment, yeah. what does this say about the future of organized religion in America. Yeah, no, I love that you asked that question because it's one I'm really passionate about. I hope over time that the work we do in the Mormon community can become a case study of how like you can engage your particular neighborhood community cultural context and we can we can share with you what we've learned about how to do that well and what doesn't work so well and of course there will be specifics to you know meditating and mormonism that will just apply to how to introduce that practice in the mormon church but i i think there will be universals too and i think over time more and more people will figure out how to apply it in novel ways and really that's the injunction of the practice it's in Buddhism, it's the Bodhisattva vow that, you know, to the extent that we've received any goodness from the practice, we want to share that. We want to be really generous with it. So I'm really hopeful over time that, you know, we'll be part of a global network that says, hey, we've got our case study here. And if, you know, we've gotten emails from, you know, people in Protestant traditions in Australia saying like, hey, what would you say about like, here's where I'm working here. Do you have any pointers? I mean, it's already starting to gel a little bit, but I think there's potential for more of it. And I imagine the advice you're giving is often along the lines of, well, here's how you can make people comfortable doing that. This stuff isn't going to attack all of their core beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. At this point, a lot of what I do is listen and just try to have a respect for how different the environments are before I assume the sameness of the environments. I think there is a lot of sameness, but I, I try to just really take in like, so what, what are you working with? And let's have that conversation. But I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for people and I'm hopeful for humans. And you mentioned religious tradition. I, I'm finishing up a book right now that looks at that a little bit. What will religious experience look like in the 21st century? I think there's room to argue that we're not just secularizing in the 21st century, that we're we're shifting our aesthetics. We still want higher meaning. We still want to live the good life. We want to know joy. We don't want to suffer. And a lot of these practices have traditionally been held by religious traditions. But these religious traditions were designed thousands of years ago for a different task. So I, I see the traditions getting reinvented, and I see this kind of work as part of that work. Yeah, I mean, we're in an interesting moment in history where most millennials are what's called nuns, right. N-O-N-E-S, not right. N-U-N-S, that, right. that they don't embrace any organized religion. But that doesn't mean, as you said, that they don't want to search for meaning or have what spirituality in their lives, whatever that may mean to them. Right, like a community that will witness the birth of their first child or, or marry them or bury them. You know, just community rituals, um, practices that uh, kind of fill us, like whether that some people read scripture as a practice, some people pray, some 
some people, you know, go running at Central Park, but we, we have different practices that, you know, uh, help build resilience to, you know, human life itself, which can be really difficult. And we're seeing a breakdown of faith and, you know, I think the, the claims of a lot of these traditions. So how can we how can we take the best of what these traditions have passed down to us, but leave behind the limitations, maybe maybe belief systems that that strain us a little bit too much? We can't sign up for all of it, but we certainly want the goodness of the tradition, the lineage, the history, the community. This has been such a fascinating interview. Is there something that I should have asked you but didn't? Any areas that you would have liked to have touched on that I failed to bring us to? Um, I appreciate the question. Uh, you asked a little while ago about, so how is this working in Mormonism? Something that uh, excites me, something that I think has allowed us to exist and persist and flourish to some extent, is that there's a really strong uh value in Mormon culture to look for truth far and wide and bring it back and, you know, corral it into back into the tradition. You know, if there's anything good, if there's anything that can elevate us as human beings, we're interested in it. So that's the, uh, that's the enterprise we're engaged in at Lower Lights. And yeah, I think you'll see more of us. If people want to learn more about you, how can they do that? The best place is our website. It's lowerlightsslc.org. So the phrase I talked about earlier, Lower Lights slc.org how about you on social media um i'm pretty lame at social media i don't do a lot of it but you could google me and i you know we have articles and meditation resources we have a podcast mindfulness plus yeah absolutely so the podcast is mindfulness plus that's with a plus sign and you know a lot of our you know teachings and things like that that we do as a community i try to you know put into the content of that show awesome yeah and uh when does the book come out uh, I'm getting through the manuscript, so it could be probably a year-ish before we're actually, unless I, you know, pull a move like you and brother Jeff Warren did. And <laughs> Don't write a book. It's the worst. Um, thank you very much. Yeah. You did a great, great job. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank absolutely. You. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.